Will you be the master of Arrakis? Well, let's find out with Dune, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again, as we always are, to talk about a game or a game series from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Super excited to be back. Uh, show's a little late this week, some life stuff, as as tends to be got in the way. But uh, but I'm here. It's a Sunday, and uh, it's uh, nice and relaxing. Have some friends coming over in a bit, but I thought I would slide in and uh, and get the podcast Done. So uh, winter is still uh, still going strong here in Toronto. Uh, it's been deathly cold this week, like, you know, in the in the minus 30, minus 35, minus 40 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. At a certain point, I found out doing some conversions that I believe below minus 30 or minus 40 uh, <laughs> Fahrenheit and Celsius actually line up. But I guess once it gets that cold, uh, it doesn't really matter how cold it is. So uh, to all of you, uh, at least in North America... <laughs> Because I know most of the uh, continent is experiencing some bitter cold. It's a, there's a nice, a nice light snow outside right now, which is kind of pleasant. But uh, I hope everyone's keeping warm. For you people living in California, well, too bad <laughs> for us, I guess. And you guys are enjoying the heat. And uh, everywhere else, if uh, if you're living in some some warm climates, well, enjoy. <laughs> Hopefully, it'll be summer soon. But you know, whatever. I love winter. And uh, I guess that's that. Enough about that. Let's get on to the news. So, according to Rock, Paper, Shotgun, a remake of the 1989 open-world RPG called Midwinter is on the way. Uh, I had actually never heard of this game before, but uh, doing some reading about it definitely sparks a little bit of interest. Uh, If any of you guys played Midwinter, drop me an email talking about it a little bit. The original looks like an awesome idea that uh, was limited a little bit by the tech of the time. So, they have some comparative screenshots Verse between uh, the original, may have been the original Amiga version. It did come out for PC as well, but uh, versus kind of a newer, the uh, the new implementation. And uh, from what I can see, the new game, at, at least in the, uh, I don't know if it's concept art or if it's actually in engine, but but wow, it looks like photorealistic. So uh, I'll have the link there to that rock paper shotgun article, and uh, and I'll, I'll I'll keep an eye on this. Next, of course, there was some big SimCity news over the past little while. Uh, it appears that offline mode for SimCity 5 is on the way. Uh, so that there's an announcement on uh, on SimCity's blog, and then a follow-up blog article has, uh, I believe it's, it's either the lead designer or one of the senior uh, programmers uh, discussing the fairly substantial changes that had to be made to the game core to make this offline mode happen. Uh, I don't know if it's enough to save the game for me. There's obviously still a bunch of people playing SimCity. Uh, I've got the game, so maybe once this goes live, I'll I'll give it another go. Frankly, it doesn't solve the biggest problem with the game for me, which is uh, city size. And I know they said that increasing the city size totally breaks the uh, the simulation. It becomes dog slow, and it just doesn't scale very well above uh, above the current city size limit that they have. But then again, they said that offline mode was impossible, and that seems to be coming now. So, uh, you know, hope still holds out for, for SimCity 5. If you remember 
back to my review of it. I, I really enjoyed the game. It's a really cool game. It's really well done. It's really detailed. The, the simulation aspects, at least in theory, are, are very cool. I know they've done a lot of work fixing bugs in the simulation. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, the game does have kind of this cloud hanging over it with the release and, and all that stuff and the, you know, the departure of a lot of the senior team that came up with it and things like that. So, Anyways, uh, SimCity news always important in uh, in in UMB cast land. So we will uh, we will watch this as we always do. Finally, in Steam Machine news, uh, it looks like the Steam controller has undergone a little bit of a redesign. Uh, they've added some hardware buttons, I believe six hardware buttons, in addition to the removal of the uh, vaunted touch screen. Now. At first, I was not too happy about this, but the more I hear about it, the more I read about it, the more it makes sense. To use a touchscreen, you don't have any kind of haptic feedback. You don't have any feedback saying, you know, this is where the button is, this is where your finger is on the controller, and so to use it properly, you need to take your eyes off of the action. Uh, This isn't ideal, and I know for a fact that Steam does not want this to to be the case. Uh, so as more and more people get used to it, we'll continue to hear thoughts on, on this controller and on the changes happening to it. I'm hearing good things and not so good things right now. Nothing outright bad, but some people are saying that, you know, for games where a controller is traditionally used, the Steam controller isn't all that great. But for other games where you wouldn't traditionally use a controller, like uh, like a SimCity or Europa Universalis or something like that, uh, it's, it's actually quite interesting. So that's that for the news. Let's roll on to some emails. Okay, a couple of emails to get to before we get to the main event. First message we've got is from Ryan. He writes, Hi Joe and fellow blockers. Thanks for covering Police Quest recently on the show. I'm a bit of a latecomer to much of Sierra's Adventure Games catalog, so it's been a lot of fun hearing you talk about uh, their various franchises. However, the main reason for this email is to draw attention to several Sierra-related sites I'm not totally sure if you're familiar with, and if you've previously mentioned these on the show, please disregard this message. Without further ado, uh, the first one is Sierra Gamers at sierragamers.com. This was a site created by Ken Williams, yes, that Ken Williams, following the official demise of the company back in the 2000s. It's a very great resource for finding all kinds of memorabilia for most of their games and uh, a lot of fun knickknacks like scans from most, if not all, of their hint books, manuals, and even issues of Interaction, which was the in-house magazine slash marketing material similar to Nintendo Power for those of us who grew up on console games. Next, we have Sierra Help at sierrahelp.com. This is another great site run by Collector, which uh, hosts a plethora of patches for Sierra games and also new installers, which will set up their games with DOSBox, which is really handy for anyone who is still playing the games with their original floppies and CDs. Uh, There's also patches that will update the Steam versions of King's Quest and Space Quest collections that are still sold via Steam, and he puts a link to that there. Uh, Finally, we have Quest Studios at queststudios.com and Sierra Music Central at sierramusiccentral.com. Great resources for anyone who likes the music from Sierra's games featuring downloads of the soundtracks recorded from MT32 MIDI synthesizers. Keep up the excellent work on the show. Ryan, a.k.a. Shop Troll, is one of my my pals from the Gamers with Jobs forums. So uh, thank you, Ryan, for that. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I definitely have spent a, a lot of time or some amount of time on on each of these sites over the years, uh, both before I started the show and after I started the show. Uh, I know Quest Studios is definitely, and Sierra Music Central is definitely a place where uh, where I spent a ton of time when I got my hands on my MT32, downloading the original uh, MT32 MIDI files, 
and uh, you know, fiddling with them there. They have like old school uh, patch banks and stuff like that that you have to upload to the MT32 to make it sound right and, and a whole bunch of cool stuff like that. And uh, you know, the other ones, I know Space Quest, uh, there's a lot of uh, info on Sierra Gamers for that. So I, I, I do really love these, these cool sites. You know, especially Sierra Gamers being that it was uh, run by Ken Williams. It's, it's lacking in a couple of places. They don't have like complete information on all the games and stuff like that. But uh, it is cool. And you see uh, kind of where Ken Williams was at at a certain point uh, after Sierra went under. And all the other ones, Sierra Help with the patches and things like that to, uh And you see a lot of links to those on the uh, on the to those sites on the DOSBox forums for people trying to get stuff running and uh and everything like that. So thanks so much. Uh, I know I, I knew of these sites, but uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned them explicitly on the show. So uh, thanks for, for, for doing that. And, uh, you know, if you guys are interested, definitely check those out. They're, they're really, really cool sites if you're into Sierra. Next, we have an email from BJ. He writes, hello, Joe, and all the fellow blockers. Well, this is not necessarily within the scope of the Upper Memory Block podcast, which mainly focuses on PC games of the DOS and free Windows XP gaming eras. I figured that since it does have to do with a topic or two or three that has been covered on the program before, I figured it would fit. I have recently gotten hopelessly addicted to a Japanese television show called Game Center CX. In this show, a middle-aged comedian, comedian named Shinya Arino... Uh, known as Arino Kacho or the Kacho, plays older video games, mainly console games on the uh, Japanese versions of the NES and SNES. More often than not, he is very, very bad at them. In fact, some games that listeners to the UMB cast might know of right off the bat that he has tackled include Lemmings, which was the subject of a 24-hour live broadcast and two episodes of the proper program, Out of This World, uh, another world in Europe and outer world in Japan. Did someone not make up their minds in marketing or what? Uh, Prince of Persia, Contra, Street Fighter 2, and who hasn't heard of this game? Flashback, the Mega Man series, Golden Axe, or N Golden Axe, uh, available on the DVD collection I will mention below. And this is just scratching the surface. Now, keep in mind that almost all of these are the console versions of these games, and not all of them have good controls on the consoles themselves, nor are good ports of the games mentioned above, especially the PC native games like Lemmings and Prince of Persia. Also keep in mind that a lot of these episodes are in Japanese. However, most of them are reasonably accessible to English speakers because of fan translation groups, with one exception. The Golden Axe Challenge is on a DVD called Retro Game Master, the Game Center CX collection, and isn't exactly cheap at $50. Luckily, it's properly subtitled, so English speakers can get as much enjoyment out of the episode as the Japanese speakers can. I will also include a link to one of the more prolific fan translation groups so that you might include them in your show notes. And that's at sa-gccx.com. Good luck with your next show, Joe, and see you on the Facebook page. Thank you, BJ. That's that's really cool. Uh, to me, it kind of, I'm not probably wrong, but it kind of sounds like, you know, that original Japanese version of most extreme elimination challenge or whatever. And, um, you know, I love these kinds of... Uh, these kinds of shows where games are featured and all this stuff. So, uh, and I know Japanese TV can be a little bit wacky. So, uh, yeah, great, great. Thanks for that. I'm going to link all this stuff in the show notes. And, uh, and if anyone's interested, Hey, feel free to go and check it out. You're listening to the upper memory block podcast. Time for. Okay. On to the main event, Dune. Now, it seems like I've gotten myself into the same boat as I was in last time. Uh, the Dune series consists of five games. Uh, the first two, entitled Dune and Dune 2, both released in 1992. 
The funny thing, which uh, we will certainly get to, is that despite this naming, these games are in no way sequels of each other. Uh, because of this, I'm going to do this show a little bit differently than I usually do. I'm going to split it in two. This time, you'll get the lowdown on the first game and its follow-up, which is actually the last game in the series. And next week, I'll drop another show covering the second game and its sequels. So instead of one long show and then nothing for two weeks, you'll get part one this week and part two next. Exciting, ain't it? So with that in mind, let's get on to discussing the first game, Dune, which was developed by Cryo Interactive and published by Virgin Interactive. So genre time, uh, Dune is most assuredly a hybrid game. It contains elements of two game types we've already seen. Firstly, it's an adventure. Uh, We've seen tons and tons of adventure games on the show thus far, so I don't need to go over it in detail, but for those of you who, you know, if it's your first time listening in an adventure, you're generally cast as a protagonist who is tasked with, uh, with a mission or a quest early on in the game. You complete your quest by interacting with other characters, solving puzzles, and otherwise overcoming the obstacles or whatever obstacles are put in front of you. Uh, Your character doesn't generally experience growth in a traditional RPG manner, but may acquire new knowledge and skills as a function of a story, as opposed to via experience or leveling mechanics or, you know, killing a thousand boars or something like that. Aside from the standard adventure tropes that were so popular in the early 90s, Dune was also a strategy game. Now, unlike an adventure game where you're required to solve a series of puzzles, a strategy game requires you to overcome challenges through the use of skillful thinking and planning. Now, they may require you to lead units in military operations, manage an economy, research technology, and otherwise oversee the functioning and efficiency of whatever groups and systems you are placed in charge of. Strategy games are usually classified by their method of interaction, either turn-based or real-time. In this case, we're looking at a flavor of real-time strategy. This means that the time... Uh, in the game does not pause while you consider your actions. If enemies are attacking or some other deadline is approaching, it will continue to do so while you are playing. This can add a sense of urgency to the game and cause the player to make some rash decisions out of stress or whatever. So how does this game meld these two fairly disparate genres? Well, let's get on with things and see. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. Okay, story time. Explaining this can go one of two ways. It can be very easy and straightforward, or it can be incredibly long and complex. Uh, The easy explanation is that Dune follows the story of the Frank Herbert novel that goes by the same name. If you've read the book, or to a somewhat lesser degree, if you've seen the 1984 David Lynch movie, uh, you know the story. In fact, you know the entire story. This game is entirely based on those original sources. If you want to get more complex, that is having me uh, explain the story and world in incredible detail, I could, but uh, it's probably better to let Princess Irulan, the daughter of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, explain things. Here's an excerpt from the film, which actually plays as the intro on the CD version of the game. The beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. 
The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The Spacing Guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space. That is, travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you, the spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as June. So that's the overview of the story in a nutshell. You are Paul Atreides, son of Duke Leto Atreides and Lady Jessica. This means you are heir to the house Atreides, one of the great houses of the Imperium, the great interstellar empire that exists in the Dune universe. House Atreides was given an offer from the Emperor, the opportunity to mine the precious spice from the planet Arrakis. Until now, another house has retained sole rights to the spice collection on Arrakis, that is House Harkonnen. Your father, Duke Leto, accepts the Emperor's offer for two reasons. Firstly, it will bring incredible wealth to the Atreides. Secondly, it is an opportunity to defeat their longtime enemies, the Harkonnen. Okay, time for gameplay. So as we've heard thus far, Dune is a hybrid game containing both adventure and strategy elements. Despite this seemingly complex framework that we're in and the incredibly deep world that we're in, which is expanded on in books and movies and TV shows and and a whole bunch of stuff, the goal of the game is very, very straightforward. In fact, your quest is outlined by your father in one line in the first minute of the game. My son... We must mine the spice as soon as possible, or the Emperor will recall us from Dune. So, we know that House Atreides is new on Arrakis, also known as Dune, and uh, we have few resources outside of some staff, the palace that uh, we were granted by the Emperor, and a few Orenthopters to get around. Since we don't have the industrial might of the Harkonnen, the only way we'll be able to successfully mine spice and hold our lands is to recruit tribes of local Fremen to work for us. So the Fremen are the native people of Dune. Well, this isn't exactly correct as they came to the planet as wanderers long ago, but for our purposes, native is a good enough description. They were here before we were. Uh, The Fremen are a tough people who've adapted over time to survive in the desert. Due to the immense scarcity of water on Dune, their culture has formed around the preservation and conservation of water to the, polo- to the, to the point of collecting water from their dead and, uh, you know, kind of giving it back to the rest of the tribe. The Fremen live in sieges. Now, sieges are underground dwellings protected, by the ravi- or protected from the ravages of Arrakis's climate. Sieges vary in size from housing a few dozen Fremen to thousands. Paul's first task 
is to recruit the leaders of nearby sieges to work for the Atreides. So we find out from our father that uh, Paul's weapons instructor and friend, Gurney Halleck, is already out at a nearby siege named Carthag Tuek. We should exit the palace and meet him. Interacting and traveling uh, in these narrative adventure portions of the game resemble kind of a cruder version of Myst, I'd, I'd say. Uh, you're shown a scene through a first-person view, uh, obviously through Paul's eyes, and interactable characters stand in your view and can either be clicked on or accessed via a menu on the bottom center of the screen. To move around from screen to screen, you use a set of arrow icons. Now, since we're currently in the throne room, we have to go down two or three screens, I can't remember exactly how many, uh, until we're outside the palace. Here you see an Orenthopter. This is kind of the uh, helicopter of, D of the Dune universe, which you use to travel across the overworld map, at least initially. Uh, entering the Orni, as you call it for short, uh, you select Carthag Tuek, and you fly there. Now, this flight is illustrated by a somewhat long cinematic of uh, traveling across the desert. It definitely puts you into the world and shows us how far apart things are on Dune. However, since we have a destination selected, we can skip this cinematic and jump right to our destination. Once arrived, we meet Gurney and then proceed to meet with the local Fremen leader. He agrees to work for us, and uh, we're now given the option of recruiting him and his uh, and his his band, his tribe, as spice miners or as a military unit. Well, for the moment, we're not really popular. They don't really know us. So uh, the only thing they'll agree to do is to work to mine spice. Now, this is our first exposure to the strategy aspects of the game. Initially, your Fremen allies will not be very skilled spice miners. However, as time goes on and they are left to their own devices, they will improve their skills. Initially, this is how you spend the bulk of your time. You ask Gurney to come along with you, so this is an option of the game. Anyone you interact with, you can ask to come with you. Uh, they can agree or they could disagree, and then you can bring them to different places and, and use their skills. So Gurney comes with you, and, uh, and you go to visit other nearby sieges that are indicated on your map. Right now, all but one of them will work for you. Uh, some leaders will also tell you of other sieges nearby that you haven't discovered yet, and from their sieges, you can fly in the direction they indicate and locate additional locations, or additional sieges. I'm saying sieges a lot, and it's making me act funny. <laughs> sieges, sieges, sieges. It's a funny word. You know, maybe, and maybe I could get into this now. The reason I don't know a ton about the Dune, the, the Dune universe, is uh, is because I've tried to read the first book about eight hundred times. Okay, maybe it's more like five times, and I've almost gotten all the way through it. But it's stuff like this. It's all the words they use. They use them a lot in uh, in the uh, in the book, and they don't really explain them. So there's an there's an appendix in the back where there's like a glossary. So if you read the word siege in the context of the book, Frank Herbert doesn't explain what a siege is. You have to flip to the back of the book, find the word siege, and then say, "Oh, a siege is a place where the Fremen live. It's underground," and blah blah blah. And then oh, and then you're reading that, and you're like, "Oh wait, what are the Fremen?" Then you have to go and look up what the Fremen are, and then it explains what the Fremen are. And, you know, it just kind of goes to you start getting off on these rabbit trails. And I always had trouble in the book doing stuff like that. So anyways, that's a total tangent. Uh, nothing to do with this. So let's keep going. So we were locating sieges. And uh, so you may notice that as you fly from siege to siege, uh, it becomes night. Well, this is the real time aspect of the game. So as you fly around, time does pass. And eventually you trigger a message from the emperor stating that he requires his first spice shipment. 
Uh, one of the most important aspects of the game is getting the spice shipments out on time and in the proper amounts. Uh, you can short a shipment or you can miss one. However, this causes the next shipment to uh, be required in less time. If you miss two shipments, I believe, it's game over. You might get more a third chance, but basically two or three misses and you are done. Game over immediately. You get recalled from Dune, blah, blah, blah. In addition to spice mining, some Fremen will also act as spice prospectors. These Fremen will move to new and unexplored sieges to determine how much spice is available for mining. The spice at a new siege cannot be mined until it is prospected. Eventually, as you expand and discover new sieges, uh, you will be sent on a mission to find Stilgar, the Fremen leader. So not just the leader of the tribe, the leader of all Fremen. Once you do this and uh, he meets your family, you can begin training your Fremen allies as military troops. This is important as troops are the only ones who can defend a siege or conquer a Harkonnen fortress. Uh, they can also perform espionage to reveal the status of an enemy encampment, other things like that. Obviously, they are also key in the eventual final assault on the Harkonnen. Further on in the story, we find out that the possibility exists for Arrakis to be terraformed into a green life-bearing planet. This opens up the option to have your troops specialize in ecology. Uh, this allows those Fremen, who you deem to be ecologists, uh, to build things like wind traps. These act as power plants and, uh, and to plant bulbs, which will grow into vegetation. Ecology has a positive effect on the morale of your Fremen and can lower the effectiveness of Harkonnen spice production. On top of all this, if you know the story of Dune somewhat, you'll know that Paul himself undergoes some changes. He soon learns that he has the power of telepathy, which he can develop through talking with his mother, Jessica, who is, I believe, a Bene Gesserit priestess, which is, again, one of those things you have to go look up in the back of the Dune novel. He eventually also picks up the ability to use Arrakis's famous sandworms as transport. So instead of the Ornithopters, he can, uh, he can jump on the back of a sandworm. Finally, Paul's charisma is actually a very important statistic. Some Fremen leaders will not immediately work for the Atreides because Paul's charisma isn't high enough. Progressing through the game, keeping Fremen morale high, and generally doing a good job contributes to charisma. While you can't see it as a numerical value, or so I think you can't, uh, an easy way to check Paul's progress through the game is to go into the bedroom in the palace and look in the mirror. As Paul increases his skills, his eyes will turn more and more blue on blue, as they call it in the books. Some people argue that this whole stats and Paul's development adds a bit of an RPG element to the uh, adventure and strategy combo, but I don't really consider this to be the case since you don't really have any direct control over how Paul's abilities developed. You aren't role-playing him in a D&D sense and leveling him up and giving him more dexterity and more, pa more points to telepathy. You're more simply controlling his actions through the story in an adventure sense. So there's a lot more in here, such as upgrading your units with equipment like Ornithopters, Harvesters, and various weapons. Uh, you know, these are found or scavenged from Harkonnen fortresses or even purchased from smugglers who live in neutral villages. This is really a big game, and I could talk about the gameplay for a lot longer than this. There's strategy. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, in fact, there are even multiple paths to victory. You can go for a pure military victory, or you could try and defeat the Harkonnen via ecology. Uh, either way results in a final battle using all of your forces. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Focus. 
Okay, tech focus time. Dune came out in 1992 and boasted some fairly standard system requirements. Uh, the ones I came across were for the CD version. However, I'm pretty sure the disc-based version also had the same requirements, less the uh, CD-ROM. So to play Dune, you needed to be running at least a 386, 20 megahertz with 500K of available RAM. Uh, OS-wise, the game supported MS-DOS 5.0. If you ran the game from the CD, you only needed to install about 50k worth of files, probably just the uh, the executable, and a place to put your save games. However, you did need at least a double-speed CD-ROM. Single speed was not fast enough. Graphically, the game ran at uh, 320 by 200 VGA at 256 colors, so it looked quite nice, and uh, it controlled with a keyboard and a mouse. Now, the thing I really want to discuss in this section is the music. The game's score was composed by Stefan Pick. At, uh, at the time, he was an in-house composer at Cryo Interactive. Pick first began his composing career in 1987 with ERE Informatik and soon moved to Cryo. We'll get into uh, more details about ERE and Cryo and uh, that whole situation uh, in the dev story. But for now, uh, Stefan claims to own dozens of instruments from all over the world, and he also claims that he can play them all with, uh, with some skill. In interview, uh, he claims his musical style incorporates what he calls organic sonority. That is, he uses many organic sounds uh, in his music. This can definitely be heard in the score to Dune. We hear many sounds reminiscent of breathing, water, and sighs. The soundtrack was MIDI, and many hail it as one of the ultimate uses of the MIDI format. The soundtrack was so well-received, and again, we'll get into the reasonings behind this whole thing, but uh, it was actually released as an album by Virgin Records. The tracks were rearranged and re-recorded by Pick and Philip Ulrich, Ulrich who, uh, again, we're going to talk about a lot more in a little bit, Sadly, Virgin was since or Virgin Records was uh, since sold to EMI, who retained copyright to the soundtrack. Pick has been trying for quite a while to acquire the rights from them in an effort to re-release this rare album, but uh, thus far he has not been successful. Listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for. Okay, dev story time. Now, this was actually a tough one to find info on as Dune 2 tends to dominate the internet as kind of the seminal Dune game, but we'll get to that one in a week. So, aside from Frank Herbert, who created the Dune universe, this game is attributable to one Mr. Philip Ulrich. Ulrich is a really interesting guy. So born in 1951, Ulrich took an interest in music. He spent five years during the 1970s traveling around the world. United States, Tahiti, obviously more places in Europe. Uh, by the time he returned to France, though, where he, uh, where he was born, he was penniless. Not to be deterred by simply having no money, he started up a, a community of musicians based out of a farm where he cut his 1979 album entitled Le Roi du Gasoil. 
Some reading reveals some controversy around this album, but uh, it's a little bit beyond my scope here. If anyone is in the know, feel free to drop me an email. Regardless, Ulrich started getting into computers, electronic music, and programming in the early 80s. In what seems to be his pattern, in 1981, Ulrich and Emmanuel Vio founded ERE Informatique, one of France's first video game companies. Their first hit game was a flight sim uh, named Interceptor Cobalt for the Sinclair ZX81 and uh, the ZX Spectrum. Uh, they continued to be successful with their first international hit called MacDam Bumper, which was a pinball simulation developed by team member Remy Herbulot. Due to some financial issues, though, uh, ERE ended up being acquired by Infograms kind of around this time. In 1988, Herbulot, Ulrich, and a few others in the company formed a new label known as Exos, which kind of existed underneath ERE. This was going to be a sort of skunkworks division inside of ERE developing amazing next-generation games. Now, they would go on to create the strange but interesting game called Captain Blood. Now, this game might actually merit... I've never heard of it until now, but this game might actually merit an episode. Uh, It involved uh, the story of the game was about an 80s video game designer uh, who got sucked into a space game of his own making. The goal of the game was to kill five clones of himself that were created, well, there were 25 clones of himself that were, or sorry, 30 clones of himself that were created in a hyperspace accident, and he's tracked down over 800 years. He has successfully tracked down 25 of them, and the last five remain to be killed. So he needs to find them and kill and destroy them or kill them or whatever because they have what is referred to, at least on the Wikipedia page, as his quote-unquote vital fluid. I don't want to go there. Uh, anyways, finding these guys is accomplished by searching planets and talking to various aliens who point you to other nearby planets. Kind of similar in mechanic to the way the Fremen leaders point you to other unknown sieges in Dune. As odd as this game sounds, uh, Captain Blood reviewed very well and uh, and at the very least sold well in France. I don't know about uh, worldwide sales, but in France it sold quite well. Now, by 1989, due to financial problems, which included uh, missing royalty payments, the uh, the Exo, Exo, is that it? Exos guys, the Exos sub-team, uh, soon became fed up and decided to leave the Infogram's umbrella uh, and decided to form an independent group, of independent development group, which they refer to as simply Cryo. Around this same time, uh, management at Virgin Interactive, so totally unrelated, Virgin Interactive management expressed a desire to create a video game version of Frank Herbert's Dune. However, after the mediocre performance of the 1984 film and Frank Herbert's death in 1986, no one was sure where the rights to the franchise would end up. The next year, 1990, by this time, you know, Virgin had done a bit more checking and they were fairly confident they'd be able to secure the rights, though they hadn't as of yet. Despite this, because they were confident about it, they decided to go ahead with the project and started looking for a developer to make them a game based on the Dune franchise. Now, I like the fact that these two two independent story threads going here. I'm going to tie it all up and it's going to be awesome. So ERE was in the process of filing for bankruptcy now in 1990. However, the cryo team was still together and they were still riding high after their recent success with Captain Blood. In fact, they were looking to leverage the new CD-ROM format. However, they were in the middle of legal proceedings with infograms to buy back the rights of their own games so they could go off and be their own uh, their own studio. 
Because of this, no active development could occur. Cryo needed a new publisher if they were going to be able to make any new games. Now, Ulrich remembered an acquaintance that he had known for about 10 years uh, who was now working at Virgin Interactive in the U.S. Now, I'm pretty sure we talked about kind of the uh, the inception of Virgin Interactive back in the seventh guest episode, I believe. So, uh, you know, those people that were involved in that whole thing, he knew a guy over there. Uh, he set up a meeting and uh, as kind of uh, an enticement to get them in, he offered to port Captain Blood to the Sega Mega Drive as soon as they were able to kind of wrestle the rights from infograms. Virgin was, was, was amenable to this idea and uh, also asked them to come to a meeting in California with three ideas for no, new games. Cryo sent Herbulo with uh, three sci-fi game ideas. Turns out they weren't really needed. After one meeting, Virgin Management said what they really wanted Cryo to do was to work on their Dune game. However, work could not begin yet because they still hadn't secured the rights to the Dune franchise from whatever it was, be it... Uh, some movie studio or uh, Herbert's uh, state, something like that, whoever it is that had it. So despite this apparent setback, Hebulo went back to France ecstatic. He told the rest of the team, and they were incredibly happy as well. They were certain this was all going to work out. And three weeks later, Virgin called and said, hey, the rights are ours. Let's begin work on Dune. Cryo began work on both this game with a Gameplay based loosely on the planet discovery aspects of Captain Blood, in addition to the story and look of the 1984 movie. And they also started work on another game at the same time called KGB, which I assume has something to do with Russian spies. This, linked with the acquisitions of the rights to Captain Blood, led Ulrich to decide that they would relaunch as Cryo Interactive in partnership with Virgin. So everything seemed great, but this wouldn't last long. In the autumn of 1990, after a few very busy months of development, a fax came in from Virgin US asking Cryo to cease development on both games. Some additional legal problems stemming from their ERE and Infogram split and the reacquisition of ERE by another company uh, caused Virgin to lose faith in the Cryo team. Behind Cryo's back, they had engaged Westwood Studios to take over the Dune licensed game but something a little bit more straightforward, a pure strategy title, which they thought would sell much better in the U.S. market. Now, we'll talk a lot more about that game in the next part of this little series. So with this kind of bombshell in mind, uh, Cryo would not be deterred. They did not stop development on the game for a moment. Ulrich started appealing to industry publications to feature their Doom game, Dune game, and, uh, and keep it in the spotlight, stopping Virgin from backing out without looking really bad. After a few months of ups and downs, they convinced Virgin not to can the project. In fact, I'm not sure what they did, but Virgin got so on board uh, that they also decided to market the game's unique soundtrack by Stefan Pick, which we discussed in Tech Focus as, uh, as a CD called The Spice Opera. So Dune released in May of 1992 to great reviews and sold 20,000 copies the first week. The CD-ROM version released a few months before Virgin's big bid in the CD-ROM gaming and a game we've already recently talked about, The Seventh Guest. So while Seventh Guest was Virgin's first CD-ROM only game, it wasn't their first CD-ROM game. Dune was. The CD-ROM version boasted improved graphics, speech, music, and clips from the movies. It really was a great success. So, of course, you think I would talk next about the sequel, 
Dune 2. However, that is actually the Westwood game, which uh, is only related to this game in as much as they are both about the Dune universe and they are both published by Virgin Interactive. The first real sequel to this game came nine years later in 2001. Frank Herbert's Dune, this is the name of the game, was based on the 2000 Sci-Fi Channel miniseries of the same name. This game covers the two-year period where Paul gains the trust of the Fremen as outlined in that miniseries. Sadly, the game was a flop and is attributed to the bankruptcy and failure of Cryo Interactive. Dune Generations, an online 3D RTS game, was also cancelled because of Cryo's folding. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So where can we get Cryo's Dune today? Well, nowhere for purchase, as far as I can see. Uh, I had to poke around some abandonware sites and stuff to find it. And uh, I assume the rights are sitting with whoever scooped up Virgin Interactive when it went under in 2000-something or other. So, unfortunately, you can't just jump on GOG and get it, though it didn't take very much hard Googling to uh, to find even the CD version with all the kind of the extra fun stuff. It's just there's no prepackaged stuff where you just kind of install it. You have to do all the DOS box setup and map a CD-ROM and, you know, a couple of little issues like that. So usually now is when I read emails, and I do have some emails about Dune, but I'm going to save them for the second part of this little series uh, because the emails tend to cover both games. But uh, So that means you still got a week. If you have any memories about Dune or Dune 2 that's going to be coming up or any of the other games in the Dune series, Dune 2000, blah, 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 you got a week to send them in. Fire them off, podcast at umbcast.com. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by jewelbeat.com. Okay, so... Big question of the show, at least of this part, does Dune, the first one at least, hold up today? Well, first, some context. I think I said this at the end of the last show, but I had never played this game before. In fact, 
I was not even sure that this game existed. For a long time, I was under the weird impression that they had cleverly named the first game in the Dune universe, Dune 2, because it was a sequel to the movie. Uh, I soon found out I was wrong, but then somehow was put under the false impression that the original game was awful and therefore didn't bear a look. The first real Dune game was Dune 2, the RTS. Well, let me say that I was wrong. This is an incredibly complex, deep, and interesting game. It's a very interesting take on a real-time strategy game with very strong story elements. I haven't come across a game that melds adventure gameplay and strategy so seamlessly. Uh, You're always playing in Dune. There's no downtime. In a more traditional RTS, you'll frantically micromanage your units, finish a mission, and then you sit through a bunch of cinematics and some, you know, gameplay screens and how you did and all that stuff. In this game, you're looking at things from a bit more of a macro level. You tell people where to go and you tell them what to do, but they do most of it themselves. When you tell them to mine spice, you don't tell them to go here and mine spice and then move over there and attack this guy and then collect this and build this building and blah, blah, blah. When you're not managing your military or your economy, you're interacting with characters. Uh, it's, it's a very deep and very immersive experience. You care about the people in the game with you. They aren't just fodder to send against the enemy like in a more traditional RTS. This game is really unique. The voice acting in the CD-ROM version isn't all that great, but it's certainly passable. It's certainly better than the voice acting in King's Quest V, let's say. Um, The music is amazing, and the graphics are pretty good even today. This is a recommend. It's a truly unique game that tells a great story in a very interesting way. Try it out. I was very surprised. I suspect you will be as well. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, so that's it for this show. Like I said, this is only part one of my Dune coverage. I'm gonna aim to get part two out in one week as opposed to two. Uh, Might be a shorter show. This one's a slightly shorter show than usual, so the next one might be as well. Uh, There I'm gonna talk about, like I said, the second game in the series and its sequels. Uh, I felt that these games were different enough that I couldn't just talk about them in the same show. We'd need to have two dev stories and two this is and two that. So I figured let's just split them up, put them out one week apart, and that way we can have two separate things that are still kind of linked together. So next week, that's one week from today, not two, we will be talking about Westwood Studios' Dune 2. Also, before I forget, the Big Wing Commander giveaway is still going on. You drop me an email at podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line Wing Commander Giveaway to win all of the Wing Commander games from GOG. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We're getting more and more active over there as as time goes on. I I enjoy spending time in there chatting with you guys, posting stuff, discussing news articles and stupid theories that I have and fun ideas that you guys have. It's really, really great. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally, twitter.com billybob4 slash billybob476. Uh, You can also find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umbcast. Don't do a ton over there, but hey, it's, a, it's another place for us all to uh, to congregate. And over at YouTube, on YouTube, at youtube.com slash umbcast, where uh, there's playthrough videos of both the for this game and Dune 2. 
As always, subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews, five star if you think I deserve them. That's it. And I will see you guys next time for Dune 2 here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated.
With Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So, what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.